People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lett. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 17. We're here in a new year, and today we are joined by Jillian Hyde, the chief psychologist at Psychological Consultancy Limited, one of Hogan's top distributors in the in the UK. Uh, Jillian's work encompasses in-depth individual assessments, uh, consulting on the management of extreme personality characteristics for individual and team development, and researching derailment patterns within organizations. She also designs tailor-made assessment solutions for clients and is an expert trainer on the Hogan Development Survey. So Jillian, is there anything else you would like the listeners to know before we dive into the episode? Um, hi, hi everybody. Hi, Blake and Ryan, and thank you very much for inviting me onto this podcast to talk about one of my very pet subjects. Um, I guess, I mean, you've covered the fact, yes, I'm an organizational psychologist, and I've been working in the field of psychometrics and assessment since 1989. And in fact, back then, I was really uh, much more involved in um, work around ability tests and assessing abilities and aptitudes. And it wasn't really until I was introduced to Bob and Joyce Hogan in 1994 that I really started to learn about the wonderful world of personality assessment. And in fact, the world in particular of Hogan personality assessment. And since then, since um, 1996, in fact, I've been working with Hogan as a distributor, but also as a practitioner. And I have to say that, you know, in my everyday uh, life in my work, in my professional career, when I'm applying the Hogan suite, I still love the insight and the clarity and the coherence that the Hogan tools bring when I'm assessing an individual and talking through their personality. So it still gives me a buzz doing that, I have to say. So yeah, that's those are kind of some of my, um, the things that I love about using Hogan. I just want to add that, well, first of all, thanks, Jillian, for, for coming on today. But I also want to add, you know, for our audience to understand that, that Jillian's not only a, a practitioner and a, and a distributor, but also a, a scientist. And and a lot of the things that, that Hogan has published over the years, many of the things that I would say that, that uh, Jillian and Jeff and along with one of our frequent collaborators, Adrian Furnham, uh, that your group has published – um, about as much as anybody has uh, on uh, from a scientific standpoint on the use of our assessments and, and just in personality in general and, and how personality matters in the workplace. So um, I, I think your audience should know that you're not just a practitioner, you're also a scientist and, um, you know, have, have a lot to offer from a scientific perspective. Yeah. And so uh, I think 
with that, we should dive into the actual topic that we're going to be discussing today, uh, which uh, Jillian actually brought this to us as a potential idea. We, we, we knew we wanted to bring her onto the podcast, but she had a really interesting angle, and, and that is to talk about the bright side of neuroticism. So um, before we dive into that, Jillian, how are neurotics defined? Well, in general, um, they're defined pretty negatively, <laughs> you will find, in um, just general literature and, in fact, in the scientific and psychological literature. Some of the descriptions of neurotics cover uh, characteristics such as being well, uptight, anxious, self-doubting. Um, they can be very self-critical. I tend to think of them as being almost too candid about themselves, you know, being too brutally honest in their self-appraisal. Um, and they can, you know, yes, there is a downside to all of this, and they can expect the worst in situations. They probably expect people not really to like them. And they can, all that anxiety breeds into other factors like being fretful and worrying <laughs> and irritable um, and, and lots of uh, things like that. So, yeah, neurotics have this whole kind of cluster of characteristics that are all associated with some fairly negative connotations. Um, but today, yeah, we will be talking more, more about the, the bright side because when you look at those definitions, they, they can even merge into things. Some There are more some more clinical descriptions that verge into the territory of, of describing neurotics as always having failed relationships and living miserable lives and all those kinds of things. And I just felt like, well, you know, it just seems like neurotics should just give up now if we took those as being the only descriptors of them and consign themselves to a life of misery and failed relationships and low self-esteem. So today I want to do something to kind of reset that balance. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And I think it's important for our audience to understand that, you know, it, it, as we'll talk about with neuroticism today, but this is true for, for all personality traits, that there's sort of bright sides and, and um, dark sides, not in the dark side sense, but, but, but positive aspects and negative aspects to, to all personality traits. And I think Jillian's right that often neuroticism, people tend to focus on, honestly, I think it's partly because of the way it, it gets keyed and, and scoring keys, um, tend to really focus on the negative side of neuroticism um, without, without thinking about the, the plus sides, the benefits. You know, in our system, we call it adjustment, but um, people don't really think about the, the, the downsides, for example, of being highly adjusted as well. And I think those are some of the things we're going to get into today. Yeah, I can I can speak to the highly adjusted. Um, I think most people wonder if I even have a pulse sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if there's a deadline looming, and I'm just walking through the office casually, and people are looking at me like he, he knows that the deadline is in 20 minutes. Why is he getting coffee right now? Um, so uh, yeah, so and, that's, and that can be as equally as infuriating as the person who's you know getting really stressed out. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and I so I have to. I have to kind of monitor my own behavior sometimes because, you know, then I'm just, you know, I'm causing more of a problem whenever I, I feel like I have everything under control. So uh, <laughs> but other people don't know that. Uh, okay. So now that we kind of know how neurotics are defined and, and um, you know, we, we've covered that part, how are they generally described as potential employees? Okay. Well, and I think this is really where my, concerns 
mostly arise really because a lot of the descriptions of them of neurotic learning tend to then how they're going to perform in the workplace, how what kind of employee they're going to be, also still very much focuses on the negative. Um, so I'm interested very much in how characteristics possessed by neurotics could be used in a more positive way in the work environment or in a specific career. Because most of the time, as I say, the, the descriptions of them are very negative. Too often I feel they're subject to very sweeping statements of how they just won't make good employees, that they'll be a pain to work with, that perhaps they're more trouble than, than they're worth. And yes, just, I mean, they can be exasperating. I'll admit that, you know, that introspection, that moodiness, that feeling that you're a failure, all of that can be very exhausting for colleagues to, to work around. But, I, I, you know, another side of this is to remember this is a normally distributed personality characteristic. So there's an awful lot of people out there who fall into the neurotic camp. So there must be some positive outcomes for neurotics. There must be some things that they're better at, for instance, than non-neurotics. Otherwise, I mean, it just simply doesn't make sense that we've evolved uh, to have so many neurotics in our species. And also, I feel that labelling them all, just putting them onto this problem camp, just simply isn't helpful. So, yeah, okay, I might be, I do recognise that I might be biased here, but the, the, there are a lot of general statements from research, particularly in personality assessment, where the, the, there is a general rule that yeah, good employees, and that's good in inverted commas, um, need to be low on neuroticism and high on, on conscientiousness in five-factor model terminology. But that's just too broad brush. And that really is about people who are perhaps in quite prescribed roles or, you know, are at a certain level within an organisation. And perhaps you make up, to be fair, I guess, the bulk of the working population. But that's not to say there aren't plenty of other careers and jobs out there that some of the more positive characteristics um, that neurotics can bring to bear will actually have a positive impact on. So it's about, I just prefer a more nuanced approach to this. So yeah, in terms of how they're described as generally as potential employees, it's pretty negative. Well, and I would add to that point, Jillian, that you just made about uh, it's generally seen as employers want, um, you know, employees who are high conscientiousness, low neuroticism. But the problem with that is that what you're essentially saying is that what employers want is people who do what they're told and don't complain about it. Well, sure, I get that. I get why, you know, I, I want my employee to do what I want them to do and to, and to not complain about it. Um, I can see why that's really beneficial for me. But is that really necessarily beneficial for the organization? Is that beneficial for um, that individual? Not necessarily the case. And, and so I think that's where you know, people get confused or, or this can be uh, sort of a challenge is because we typically think of, you know, what do we want in somebody else so that it helps us do what we want to do better. But that doesn't necessarily make the organization more effective. That doesn't make uh, the, the general population more effective. That doesn't make that person more effective. Uh, it's 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 and quite frankly, it's sort of a self-centered uh, point of view when we talk about, you know, what we want in our employees as, as being high conscientious and, and, and low neuroticism is because that makes our life easier. That doesn't necessarily make things better. Yeah, it does. I, I agree with that. And I think um, it's but as I say, I can see that there is a place for it with certain kinds of jobs. 
But in the world of personality assessment, we, we assess for all kinds of different jobs and positions, don't we? And um, so there'll be lots of times where that wouldn't be the best, the best fit at all. And yeah, I think what you're saying, Ryan, is yeah, it does make life easier. These are people who are easy to work with. They will, they will do what they're told and they'll do it to the best of their ability. Um, but sometimes we need people who are a bit spikier and a bit more interesting than that. Well, that leads us to our next question, which, you know, and I, I'm, I don't know if our audience has done a deep dive into this, but I, but Jillian, I know you have. So, um, and that's why we brought you on to discuss this topic. So what does the research say about neurotics in the workplace? And, and, you know, what are some of the, these positive characteristics associated with being neurotic? Okay. Well, yeah, I did try to have a look at the research and it was pretty hard to, to find anything very much on this particular topic. I mean, in terms of what positive characteristics one might guess about, you know, if you're, if you've worked with people who do score high on neuroticism scales, or if you are neurotic yourself, you can guess that, you know, people who are high on this, they're going to be alert for signs of threat and danger, you know, sort of a hypervigilant. And you can see that maybe obviously there's going to be certain jobs where that could be an asset. And I'd also say just generally, I feel that um, neurotics tend to be much more passionate, very intense. And sometimes there'll be times when that's an advantage. And also this this striving element is certainly something that I've, I've been aware of in people that I've assessed. And I'll return to that in a moment. And, and also just anecdotally, anecdotally, I'd say that neurotics tend to be more reflective, um, more self-critical, yes, but then that kind of tends to lead them on to be more likely to improve. You know, we often talk about, um, uh, in HPI terms, don't we, like, uh, you know, high adjustment people, yes, they can they can take feedback, but are they actually doing anything with it? Whereas the low adjustment person might get upset by the feedback, but will go away and dwell on it and probably do something about it. Um, so anyway, I kept on looking and looking and searching for some research, and I eventually found some some interesting snippets. And so I've got about five um, positive points to make about about neurotics. And the first two, actually, the first two positive descriptions come from some work by Daniel Nettle, who's written the book Personality: What Makes You the Way You Are. So his first positive characteristic is this is around the striving theme. So he talks about neurotics as often being strivers. So that fear of failure that neurotics feel very strongly actually drives them on to do better. It can be a really powerful motivator. And when you couple that with the self-criticism that neurotics also tend to feel, that actually sort of fuels that fire of, of relentless self-improvement even more. So they're going to strive, they're going to work hard, they're going to try to do better. Um, and Nettle describes that as being something that, that they'll do without a promised external reward, simply in order to prevent any dangers that they see ahead of them. And this idea of dangers, being alert to dangers, is a theme that, that will crop up a few times as we go through these positive characteristics. So number one is striving. Number two is rumination. So, I mean, there are things around rumination, which is, again, about being alert to threat, um, ruminating, thinking, dwelling on stuff, thinking about what could go wrong, which can have um, a downside because if you're always in 
that moment of looking at what could go wrong. I suggest that could be, you know, quite anxiety provoking. But there is very much an upside, a positive aspect to rumination, something that can be quite effective about it. So Nettle argues that neuroticism, and I quote, unleashes the power of rumination. He says, you know, obviously when you ruminate, you're going over and over the smallest, tiniest details of something that's happened to you. And whilst this could be a very negative, almost depressive pattern in some cases, so if you're, for example, obsessing over what went wrong in your last relationship and your breakup, um, that might not be very helpful for, you know, for your mental health. But put it into another context, and it could be really useful for people whose job it is to anticipate problems, or if they really need to have deep understanding of a particular subject. Um, so whilst rumination then can be a problem in the wrong circumstances, put it in the right context, it can be very valuable. So Nettle, for instance, says that it can be the greatest tool of the scholar. So you can see in any job where knowledge or information is important, then having somebody who is more prone to ruminate and going over things, reassessing, reappraising the information, then that could be a very positive um, outcome. Um, the third area um, is to do with handling negative information. And actually, for all that I am neurotic, I still found this a bit sad in a way. But nevertheless, there's, there was a study carried out by Tammy and Robinson in 2005, which suggests that actually neurotics function more effectively when they're dealing with negative information or issues or scenarios. So they had people categorizing positive words and, and negative words, and they found that the neurotics judged and, and categorized the negative words faster than the non-neurotics. So it's almost like being in that negative mood um, makes the neurotic more effective. Um, so that's a kind of interesting thing to think about and how you might apply that in the workplace. Um, fourthly, realistic self-awareness. I mean, there is no doubt that, and I've touched on this earlier when I talked about neurotics being almost too candid, too brutally honest about what they can and can't do. Um, and so neurotics do very much tend to have actually a more realistic, if somewhat cynical, expectation. Um, so this can obviously be a double-edged sword. Um, it, you know, if people are being honest about their abilities, then that can actually be quite refreshing, as opposed to somebody who's more boastful um, and, and more arrogant about what they can do. But you can see, obviously, sometimes it, it, it could lead to people downplaying actually what they're capable of doing. So there's a bit of a balance there. So there'll be sometimes that's an advantage because other people around them might be actually quite pleased to hear, you know, that, that they have this rather realistic uh, self-appraisal. And then the final area where neurotics um, have a kind of have an edge over non-neurotics non is to do with emotional depth. And um, the argument here being that neurotics possess more emotional depth because they've got all that experience of dwelling on and thinking it through their negative emotions. This can have two positive impacts, actually. One is it can really help them to understand other people and have more empathy other people's worries um, and doubts and struggles but it can also mean that they're more prepared for possible negative outcomes so that or you know dwelling on the negative 
being alert to um, what could go wrong means they're informing themselves more about their environment or any perceived danger. So those are kind of the, the five areas where neurotics seem to have an advantage. And there are definitely times where that, that could be, um, you can translate that into advantages in the workplace. Yeah, I, well, I think that's probably about as good a summary as exists anywhere in terms of the the, the positive characteristics of being neurotic. I, I'm thinking, Jillian, you should probably, you know, write this up uh, yeah. and and send it somewhere, saying here here are these five areas where where neurotics uh, really do well. Because I think, um, you know, not just our audience, but audiences more broadly could could really. Uh, benefit from 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 reading that those kinds of things so i would certainly encourage you to do that i think this is um you know i i'm not aware of anybody putting putting all of this together in any way like you've done here are you uh no um, well that's why yeah as I, you know my search is for information on this i guess daniel nettle comes the closest mm-hmm. uh, he had a couple of things he didn't have the other aspects that, that i've included the number 3.5 you know so yeah, it's um, it is amazing how limited the literature is out there on this. I feel. You know, one of the things that that I think is certainly related to this sort of vigilance idea, um, and I've seen, I've seen some studies on it. Um, most recently, I saw a study this this past summer that that came out looking at uh, how neuroticism interacts with other variables, like how it can interact with conscientiousness is one that in, in particular, particularly in the health area. So lots of people doing research on, on health have found, for example, that people who are high conscientiousness and highly neurotic are more likely to take their medicine and things like that. Um, and this one that just came out this summer had to do with the COVID pandemic, and it was a you know who's more likely to follow social distancing rules. And it turned out that neuroticism actually had a positive benefit if you were high conscientious, right? So if you were low conscientious and neurotic, it didn't have that positive benefit. But if you were highly conscientious and neurotic, it actually had a positive boost towards social distancing. Yeah, I I did see that too. Um, but I guess my um, and that is interesting. Um, but my interest was very much on, I guess, the, right. the ones who are perhaps a bit more different and a bit more quirky and, and the ones who, yes, you know, they haven't got the conscientiousness part necessarily that's keeping them on the straight and narrow. <laughs> and, and therefore, they are more difficult to handle. But still, there's going to be some positives, I'm sure, um, as we'll discuss some more as well later on in this uh, podcast. Um so yeah, I, I saw that, but it, it kind of felt like it was it wasn't my interest, I guess, as much as as the ones who are less predictable. The neurotic, you know, so if you're neurotic and you're less predictable, you're less rule abiding. So then, what happens with you? Right, you're even right. more difficult to deal with than a neurotic who's high on conscience. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the ones who are kind of the most difficult to deal with, I guess. I gotcha. <laughs> Well, and that's, you know, Jillian, that's such a great way to, to to outline those positive attributes. You're actually making me wish I was a little bit more neurotic um, based on this. And I think, you know, a reason for that is is you talked about how, um, you know, if, you know, if, they, if they're given feedback, you know, or if, if a neurotic person is giving some, some negative feedback, um, they tend to kind of, you know, make a change for the better. And I think, 
you know, because we work with so many neurotics in the workplace, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that there, there's, there's many of us out or many of them out there. I think it's a really observable behavior whenever you see um, that change or whenever, you know, somebody on your team, maybe that's, you know, neurotic who uh, you, you go through a project and something didn't go well and they're told that it didn't go well. And then they don't make that mistake again, typically from what I've, from what I've observed. Yeah, that would that would be how I would view it. Like, absolutely, they yeah, they are more likely to learn from their mistakes because not because so they might seem a little bit upset at the time when they receive the feedback, but they actually yeah will go away and think about it. They're also more likely to be self conscious, so they don't want then a non neurotic, so they don't want to make that same mistake again in terms of because they don't want to embarrass themselves. And because they want to do better. So there's a kind of the self-conscious element of not doing it again and being embarrassed, but there's that striving to, to do better and to improve. And yeah, it kind of sows a seed. I think of it very much as any feedback like that with a neurotic, it's like you're planting that seed in their brain and it will go, it will worm its way in and they will go away and think about it. Whereas with a, a non-neurotic person, it bounces off their skull. <laughs> <laughs> right. As long as the neurotic person, people don't um, develop a stomach ulcer along the way as well, they are trying to fix this. Yeah, um, no, this, yeah, this is yeah, this is the worry. Of course, obviously, all that anxiety and stress. Yeah, there, there is, can be a cost. Yeah, so there's a balancing act here. Yeah. Well, okay. So based on this discussion so far, there are obviously several positive attributes associated with neuroticism. So. Does the research say anything about what kinds of jobs or the kind of work neurotics might be better at? Okay, so won't be surprised to hear after everything I've said so far that this was also something very hard to find any concrete evidence about in in the literature. Um, it's very difficult to find anything that actually links neuroticism to specific positive performance outcomes or specific careers. Um, typically, the descriptors yet again focus more, much more on the negative performance links. So, in terms of um, what I can say uh, I, to this part, is it's not really evidence, but more suggestions from other other people's writings as well. So, for instance, if we take the rumination theme proposed by Nettle, so he would say that actually that could be really useful for a scholar, for an academic. Um, any job where you're involved in you know, deep thought and reflection. And he gives the example of um, if you're modelling an equation or if you're meditating on Renaissance Italy, for example, having those ruminative tendencies can, can help you to think more deeply, process more information, see it in lots of different ways. Um, but and also this rumination characteristic could be useful for entrepreneurs um, he suggests so the energy um, from the neurotic could be channeled into thinking through maybe a new product, for example, a new software interface, or thinking about a marketing strategy. Um, or for a screenwriter, they could use that the rumination to really imagine and envision every detail of a, of a particular scene. So it's those kind of, as I say, sort of deep thinking, reflective tendencies that are associated with being more ruminative that could link, you could see how that could link to specific types of jobs. And um, in general, the evidence, all the research points to neurotic people actually tending to have lower 
career attainment in most industries. And, and the research neatly summarises this as being often due to stress-related illnesses. But I, I would say it might also be kind of a lack of self-promotion as well. You know, neurotic people, you know, are hard on themselves. I don't think of themselves as being great at things. So they're not going to necessarily be putting themselves forward for the next promotion. So, um, but on the other hand, the research generally suggests that uh, neurotics tend to do well in occupations that are more reliant on knowledge work. So anything where knowledge is key and having the time and uh, the kind of cognitive style, I guess, that goes with thinking things through, reflecting on information. Um, And in terms of specific jobs, I thought this was quite funny, actually. I did a Google search for jobs for neurotic personality. And uh, the list came up with uh, writer, artist, accountant, florist, yoga instructor and freelance designer. So um, an interesting mix there. And I think clearly writer and artist certainly tap into those rumination themes that we've talked about. An accountant would tap into the knowledge theme. Um, I'm not entirely sure where to place florist and yoga instructor on that spectrum. Uh, freelance designer, again, you can see how, how that fits. And it's and I think it's also about having jobs where you have the time and the space. You know, a neurotic needs the time and the space, I think, to process what they're thinking without um, always having, say, to defend themselves or worry about how they're coming across or having to prove themselves in the moment. I think having some time to develop an idea or develop a story or develop a, 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 a solution to a problem. Um, any job that allows you that time and space, I think, is going to be more suited to people uh, who are high on autism. Well, I mean, I think that's a great summary, Jillian, and I totally agree with the things you said there. I would just add a little bit of uh, additional color to a couple of things that, that we've seen ourselves here at Hogan or, or that I've seen in other <laughs> – I've seen in personal experiences. I, I you know, a, I was an academic for a little while, and uh, I can tell you just based on experience um, – and we have some data here at Hogan that shows this too, but I won't get too much into that, that, that certainly it is the case that people in academic jobs are more neurotic on average than people in non-academic jobs. And I think it is really um, consistent with the, with, the, with the reason that you described is that, or the way I would put it is, there's a real focus on problems, right? So in academic jobs, in entrepreneurs, which is also the same thing, we have lots of data on entrepreneurs here. We see the exact same thing that you're talking about as they tend to, to score lower on adjustment or higher on neuroticism. And I think that's what it really was the really core driver is this this tendency to focus on a problem and to, you know, to want to solve that problem and want to get that problem fixed in some way. Um, and whereas people who are high on adjustment or, or low on neuroticism just don't worry that much about problems. And, and this is a group who's really focused on problems and, and how to fix problems. And, and so I think jobs where you can focus on problems. And and the other thing that I think is is a common theme of the jobs you described, Julian, is they also tend to be jobs where you can really work much more independently. Um, and, and in some ways that uh, avoids the downsides that people often see when they talk about neuroticism because um, the uh, anxiety, the worry, the stress, uh, uh, that those kinds of things that affect other people um, they, they don't, uh, they, they don't, they're not affected by them, right? Because you're working much more independently. Does, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. It does. Yeah. Um, so that they can, I, I talked about them having the time and the space, 
to mm-hmm. do or they have to do, yeah. And I feel it's so that when they do need to present their final solution or their pitch or their whatever, then fine, they can perform in that moment. But if they've had the time and the space to really work on the problem, which they'll enjoy doing, as you say, um, without any kind of interruptions or distractions from other people, having to put on their best selves to other people um, and to try to mask their own anxieties and stress and whatever, then I think um, that's really helpful to them because they can just kind of live in the moment, do what they do best, and then have very specific times where they need to interact with others, get input from others, um, and, and obviously adapt their ideas and whatever, um, and or present to others. Um, but that perhaps it's at very sort of fixed, scheduled points in time, and they've got a lot of their other time is working independently, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you brought up like the freelance designers as one. Um, having worked with several of those in the past, um, I was like, oh, freelance designer, they're obviously neurotic, but I, you know, I never looked at it as, as to why. And it's actually just, they're finding something that's maybe a little bit better, suit, more suitable for their personality. And I just never really gave much thought as to why. I just knew that they were all similar in this one, uh, this one particular area, but. I Julie- think, yes, yeah, I think it's also for designers there's that you know neurotics are quite introspective and we and we talked about how some of the, the sort of ruminative tendencies can be useful for say like knowledge and, and academia but with design as well you've got to see the world a bit differently haven't you you've got to think about so who, how's this going to make this person feel how's this going to make this person feel is, is the look of this going to appeal to you know my particular target audience you've got to try to get inside the heads of the people that you're, your clients um, or your, your target audience. And I think if you don't have that, if so that's, I think, where the neuroticism comes in is the reflection and realising that people are different. I often think that you know, we as psychologists and certainly as personality psychologists, we're totally imbued with the notion of individual differences. And we, and, but um, for the general populace out there, quite often they don't appreciate how different we are from each other. Um, but I do think that in general, neurotics are kind of already a bit more tuned into that than most. Uh, that's, that's actually a really fascinating and great point. And, you know, you talked earlier, Jillian, about, you know, kind of the lack of research uh, out there uh, regarding neuroticism as far as the positive side of things. So, you know, I, I, I hope um, maybe you at least have a little bit of something to share for this next question I have, which are there any validity studies out there that show neuroticism to be a pre- uh, predictor of positive performance outcomes? Well, <laughs> not really. And in fact, I had to, I had to a hats off to Ryan. I had to turn to Ryan to ask him um, if he was aware of any studies. And he pointed me in the direction of a, of a couple because I couldn't find anything that, like with other validity studies, that might, you know, say, oh, uh, being higher on interpersonal sensitivity will obviously be a sort of is linked to um, positive ratings of um, uh, interpersonal style or management style or something like that. There is nothing, I could, literally nothing about 
So neuroticism could be linked to X, Y, and Z. Um, but um, so Ryan pointed me in the direction of a couple of quite, quite recent uh, pieces of research, actually. And one um, is by Julie Norem, and her work is around a topic called defensive pessimism, which is uh, an interesting slant on taking something that comes quite naturally to quite a few neurotics and putting a, a positive spin on it, finding a way to make it be effective. So what this is about is about sort of taking that anxiety and turning it into an effective, positive result. So the, the neurotic who is also a defensive pessimist will think about a future event, will imagine it that it will go badly, but because they're a defensive pessimist, yes, they think it's going to go badly, but they'll stop and think about how could they prepare and plan and organise things and take any necessary steps to make sure that it doesn't go badly. So that anxiety and the pessimism is then being harnessed into very positive steps and positive effects so that there'll be a positive outcome at the end. Um, however, it is worth pointing out here that while all neurotics are likely to be anxious and pessimistic, not all of them will be defensive pessimists. So um, the, the, whilst the defensive pessimist neurotic can turn this into a positive, um, the pessimists, though, just expect the worst. <laughs> um, so, um, but I, I thought this was really interesting that, um, that the norm actually found um, that the neurotics who have this defensive pessimist characteristic would actually be able to capitalise on this to achieve their goals. She did link it to successful outcomes Whereas anxious people, so anxious people who use this defensive pessimism actually find more success than anxious people who do not. So it's like there's a subset of neuroticism. So some neurotics will have this characteristic. And in fact, apparently, the, the sort of the counter to that is something called strategic optimism. And that, that is that so defensive pessimism, it turns out, according to Norum, is actually just a successful strategy to achieve a solution. As is um, as is strategic optimism. So I thought that was really interesting that you can have those two polar opposites um, ways of approaching a problem, and they'll be equally successful. Um, so uh, yeah, so it just depends on, on on the person, and if you're if you're a neurotic that has a defensive pessimistic characteristic as well, then you can use that to good effect. So that was one piece of research. I don't know, Ryan, if you want to step in and say any more about that. No, no, I think I think that's exactly right. Is uh, I mean, I I can say I knew one really uh, <laughs> absolutely prototype of a defensive pessimist back in grad school, and and um, you know she was uh, absolutely effective because she always thought everything was going to turn out terribly, and um, and then. It, and when it did turn out terribly, she was really well prepared for that, and it, which it rarely did. But when it didn't turn out terribly, she was, you know, over prepared, ready, you know, um, really productive and really effective. And she really, and, and I mean, she admittedly said that's the strategy I use. She was quite um, conscious about using a defensive pessimistic strategy. Mm. And I think this notion of sort of subsets of neurotics is quite interesting, mm -hmm. actually, because. I do always, when I look at an HPI profile, if somebody's low on adjustment, there are certain um, subscales there that I will look at as to, you know, how effective I think the low neuroticism person is going to be. 
So there are, you can have people who are low on adjustment, but can be very effective saying, well, it's not just to do with their adjustment scores, but also a combination of the other scales, obviously, on their HPI profile. So, you know, you have low um, adjustment people, but who are high on ambition, for instance. So they've still got some drive and determination to be able to still get stuff done. Or even, I think, interestingly, within the adjustment scale itself, I always have a look at um, no complaints and good attachment subscales. <laughs> and if the person who's low on adjustment is scoring, is scoring high on no complaints and good attachment, then that to me is a very positive indicator about the fact that they're not going to be too disaffected, I guess, is one way of putting it. And that perhaps, you know, there'll be other attributes that they have that you're going to be able to harness to, to more positive effect. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, and, and something I'd, I'd been thinking about earlier in, in our conversation is that there is a certain pattern between adjustment and ambition, particularly with the subscales. Uh -huh. When I see that, I go, "Wow, this person's really going to have a lot of um, sort of drive, right?" That's that's what you could really see. It's it, they're not super high ambition; they're like usually pretty high ambition and sort of moderate to low on neuro, on on adjustment and and it, and it, and it's it's the right combination of subscales that you, when you see that together um you go wow this person's going to be really motivated yeah and that's again i mean that's the beauty of the structure of the hpi is having um that well the granularity of that and understanding how the subscales might relate to each other and that i absolutely love yeah um, and just returning to this final theme about um, any predictors of any validity studies out there about positive performance outcomes, um, Ryan also pointed me towards a paper that um, I, I think you've done um, with Jennifer Tackett, has worked with you guys at Hogan Assessments, uh, researching the personality profiles of successful entrepreneurs. And interestingly, she found them to be equally successful, whether they're high or low, on the adjustment scale of the HPI. And I believe, and Ryan will correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe that they tended to be actually either at one end or the other of the adjustment scale, not so much in between. Um, so entrepreneurs tend to be extreme on that scale, one way or the other. But if we're looking at the neurotic ones, then the suggestion there is that those, those neurotic entrepreneurs may have some characteristic from that that is really helpful to their success. So perhaps all those reflective qualities, the ruminative qualities, the self-critical qualities, the being alert for danger qualities, they all enable the entrepreneurs to more quickly spot the problem, to react immediately to some negative feedback or criticism. And those characteristics might actually help them to respond more quickly than others um, and lead to a more successful product or more successful solution to a problem. And I would say certainly in my experience um, with um, entrepreneurs, um, I, mostly I would say they tend to be towards the lower end, in fact, um, on adjustment. Not exclusively so, but I certainly have come across a lot. And I think there is something about that energy, that passion, that intensity that comes from the, the lower scores and adjustment, i.e. the higher neuroticism, that feeds into um, the what entrepreneurs ultimately achieve. And also the fact that they're a bit different. I mean, they're entrepreneurs for other reasons, not just that they 
have that drive, but also because they want to do it for themselves. You know, they want to be the one who's um, coming up with the ideas. They're not going to sit so happily in a large organisation with layers and layers of people above them that they have to report to. You're actually starting to make me feel like there's something wrong with me because I wore my <laughs> my high adjustment badge proudly, and now I'm starting to think it <laughs> might be a problem. I think uh, I'm, I'm a bit biased, Blake. <laughs> that's why. Well, it got me thinking as to you know you you, you know you all brought up ambition as a thing because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how do I even survive this thus far in my career? Um, but I think as you brought in the ambition side of things and then talking about the subscales for me, I think as a, as a high adjusted person, um, I, I tend to turn everything, even though I'm not super high ambition, I am high on like the competitive scale. And so I feel like I turn everything in my work into a competition because I just grew up playing sports and I don't, maybe that's some reason as to how I've survived so far, but, um, it's definitely by not I'm not too self-critical though that's that's not a problem but um as we discussed and kind of why we had this episode uh or wanted to do this episode in the first place is that we know the word neuroticism alone comes with a substantially negative connotation um so Jillian what would you say to hiring managers to convince them that there's a bright side in neuroticism and not to always overlook neurotics when filling positions? I think I'd focus on the, the passion and intensity that neurotics can bring to the party. And also that, you know, they do have a sense of urgency, which we've touched on actually earlier, haven't we? In, in terms of if things are going wrong, yes, they might be a bit stressed and a bit anxious, but they'll be trying to do something to put it right. Um, and, and they will, you know, if they are really... Um, excited about something or involved in something, they they will really try to drive that forward with their energy and their enthusiasm um, for that. So, you know, if you want people who will bring that spark, I think would be one way of describing it, then um, you, know, you do want to widen your, um, your, your hiring pool and consider the people who are neurotic. Obviously, you would want to look at the rest of their profile. You know, there will be some profiles that would be, because if there are other things in the profile that would make them more difficult to manage or more difficult to work with, depending on the context, of course, then you may want to give them more of a wide berth. It may be that they're just not going to be suited to the job that's on offer. But so it's not always just the job then, is it? It's the context as well in which they work. So you could say, well, a high-pressure job, maybe that's not great for a neurotic, but if it's a high-pressure job where 90% of it they can go off and do on their own and set their own deadlines for it, well, maybe that's okay, depending on have they got the other skills and knowledge and ability to do that specific job. Um, but if it is very high-pressure, if you're always going to be in the spotlight, if you, everybody else is going to be very aware of what you're doing all the time, then maybe you know maybe you know being high on neuroticism isn't going to be such a great fit. So it isn't there isn't kind of a simple sort of golden rule, but there are clearly some jobs and or some contexts in which a neurotic is going to be more or more or less suited. 
Yeah, I mean, I would just add that it's going to be often the case that for, for a lot of, say, low-level kinds of jobs, you're probably not going to want somebody who's neurotic for those jobs, but it's actually, ironically, some of the higher-level jobs where it's going to make more sense. And let me, let me give you a specific example. A couple of years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference on transforming organizations, which is really in this theme of disruption, which I think is a, is a big theme in the, in the organizational space these days. You know, how can we change? How can we innovate? How can we disrupt? And a lot of focus on that is about like openness to experience or what we call inquisitiveness. But what we found in our own data is that actually, yeah, that that matters. But the other thing, one of the things that really does matter is people who want to see things differently, um, who are dissatisfied with the status quo. And that's what you really get with neuroticism. So what we found or what I found in, in some of the data that I've looked at is that if you're looking for that organizational change that's trying to transform your organization into something into the future, actually people who are at least a little bit neurotic help push, um, who, who are just sort of dissatisfied with the way things are and want to make change um, can, can make a big difference. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's a really good summary. Well, Jillian, with that, I have one final question for you, and um, then we'll let you go. And, and you know, we appreciate you coming on to, to join us. But before we let you go, this last question is: What kind of advice would you give a neurotic person who is either entering the workforce for the first time or looking to make a career change? I've, well, firstly, obviously, to remember that there are lots of strengths that, and positive characteristics that they bring. Um, but also um, to think about, well, I guess in a way it's the point I made before, think about what kind of job they want to do and what context they want, what kind of environment or culture they want to work in. So one thing I thought of was, um, you know, you might think, well, neurotics might be, depending on their other skills, might be good at creative writing. Now, creative writing, though, could go various ways. You could use that talent in various ways. One way could be journalism, which I think, I don't know, that could be pretty high pressured. <laughs> or the other way could be marketing. Now, marketing, again, depending on the context, could be high pressured, but you've probably got a bit more support, maybe not just down to you. It isn't necessarily your name on the, on, on the piece of editorial that's in the newspaper, for instance. So that might be a better fit. So it's thinking about what is it you really enjoy doing, but how do you enjoy doing it? Um, do you like working with lots of other people or do you like to have times when you're away from them? Do you like to be somebody who's setting your own deadlines? Do you like how much control over your own work do you want to have? Um, I think are the really important um, things that the neurotic needs to think about um, so that they can feel comfortable in whatever uh, job they, they end up in. I think, I mean, you know, in, in broad brush terms, I think people who are neurotic are probably far less suited to a general management job in a highly bureaucratic organisation with layers and layers of, um, of people within it. I think you, know, you have to be a certain beast in order to perform effectively in those organisations. And there are lots of other personality characteristics that come to play in that. But I think neuroticism doesn't help. I think being the kind of person who can, he, who is more introspective, who's going to be worried about how they're coming across, 
you know, you, it, that's going to be much more difficult for the neurotic to work in that kind of organisation where you're sort of having to prove yourself publicly all the time. Um, I think if it's, um, but if you're trying having to prove yourself publicly in the sense that, say, you're an author and you're just writing for you and it's only got your name on it, you're not doing it for an organisation or for your team, then I think that can be, that's a more, that's probably a happier fit. But it, yeah, it's, I think it's about looking at what you think are your talents and thinking about the environment in which you can leverage those, recognizing that a neurotic is going to be a bit different, is going to be a bit quirky, is going to be a bit sparky and wanting to do things differently. So what kind of organizations are you going to be able to do that? Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. I would only just add to that a little bit is that, you know, while it's, of course, important to focus on, you know, what are those strengths that you have as a neurotic and you don't want to forget about those. And often for neurotics, it's easy to forget about those. But it's also worth, you know, keeping in mind that, and again, neurotics probably won't have any problem keeping this in mind, the ways in which, um, you know, that you get stressed or the ways in which you show a little bit of anxiety might not be the same for other people. So that is having that awareness that the way you feel and the way you behave might not be the same way that, that other people feel and behave and that, and that how you behave might affect them in that way. And just sort of being aware of your natural tendencies and how those might affect other people, I think can go a long ways towards helping neurotics in, in the workplace as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, thinking about how you're coming across and the impact you're having because, yeah, we, we only do as well as um, it's not just down to us to do well, is it? It's it's down to us to create successful relationships at work. Yeah. Well, Jillian, this has been so great having you on and and talking about this topic. It's one that I, you know I was looking forward to uh, for quite some time since we since we scheduled this. I think oh gosh, back in October, I think we're scheduling that far out now. But um, but yeah, this, this is a really great topic. I'm even more fascinated now that we've had the conversation. So just thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we can't wait to talk to you again. We'll, we'll bring you on again to maybe talk about the, uh, uh, the dark side of high adjustment. You can, you can counsel me a little bit if you would like. <laughs> That's great. Oh, sorry. I just want to say thank you very much um, for having me as it's one of my um, pet subjects. I really love to talk about it and it doesn't get talked about very much. So it's really nice to have the opportunity um, to look at neurotics through a different lens. Thank you. And that does it for episode 17 of the Science of Personality podcast. Be sure to join us in two weeks when we bring Hogan's doctor, Aaron Laxon on the show to discuss team effectiveness. You won't want to miss it. Cheers, everybody. 